Counselor Accents Podcast. Two school counselors who love their jobs. Oh, and they happen to have Southern accents too. Bless their hearts. I'm Laura Rankhorn, and we are absent Kim Crumley for a little bit, so I'm going to take full advantage of that, and I'm going to hog our guest as long as I can, and I've already prepared him that Kim Crumley will jump on here soon, and I'm sure she'll make a scene when she comes on. So until then, uh, Hassan Davis, I have got you all to myself, so let's jump in and get going. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Hey, Laura. Thank thank you all for having me. I'm I'm really excited uh, that you all got in touch. My name is Hassan Davis, and I'm the former commissioner of juvenile justice for the state of Kentucky. I ran juvenile justice in Kentucky uh, for six years, uh, three years as deputy commissioner of agency of operations, and and three years as commissioner of agency. Four years, six years. I don't know. I, it was a while. Um, and in that that was in that formal administrative capacity, really uh, working hard to make sure the young people who fall through the cracks of the system uh, find some way out. I'm a graduate of UK Law School, University of Kentucky, and Berea College, and um, I came up, came to Kentucky to go to school, but I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, and St. Louis, Missouri. So a lot of moving around, a lot of transition. Um, my story. Well, I heard you on uh, the Keep Indiana Learning yeah. uh, conference. That's where I first discovered you. Okay. And I was so captivated by your session. Um, I think you probably did several sessions, but the one that I listened to was the one about um, your upbringing yeah. and how you went from the juvenile department to Juris Doctor. Right, Jewish, juvenile delinquent, the Jewish doctor. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah, that's a good place to start. So, um, early, very early, I guess the the very first piece is that I, is as a young person, really, at some point, probably up until about six years old, feeling like I was safe and the world was was mine. You know, a father who worked uh, hard at General Motors, and you know, back then that was, I guess, still that's a great job, but. You know, an African-American man in the 60s with a, a steady job at General Motors, you know, union, all those types of things. And so we had a pretty stable environment. My older sister, Teresa, and I, uh, as when we were the only two children, my mother made us feel loved and, and connected to the world. But as we grew up, I think things changed pretty dramatically and fairly quickly. You know, my daddy, you know, he's a very different man now. You know, he leads a church that he's been in for a long time. But at that point, he was probably, you know, one of the bad boys that the bad boys called tough on the street. They separated. Separation leads to divorce. Things, things fall apart. And we started moving from aunt to cousin to friend, you know, sleeping on pallets on the floor or on couches or five in the bed, wherever we could, as long as we could. So mama finally got settled, sometimes working, you know, several jobs to keep us in one place. And, um, you know, in, in that transition from stability to to being migratory in so many ways, uh, she was the stabling force, making sure that, you know, whatever it took, she made sure we had what we needed, even though we started, you know, going on and off the food stamp rolls and we started, you know, there are lots of things that's changed dramatically. But I think I formally entered the school to prison pipeline in the first grade uh, when mm -hmm. I turned seven. And 
I was that kid who couldn't sit still and, and couldn't stop touching things that weren't his, couldn't stop asking questions and, 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 and thinking about things that nobody else was even, you know, considering. You know, I, I couldn't take lines and make letters, letters and make words, words and make sense. You know, later I, I learned that, you know, it was ADHD and dyslexia, but at that time it was just bad kids, right? Even though IDEA had just started and, and we had lots of great things coming around for disability support, there was no real sense of that in place. So my teacher one day, uh, frustrated with that little broken boy, you know, grabbed me up and dragged me across the room in front of my classmates to the to the closet in the back of the room, the coat room. When we got in the coat room, she said, this is your classroom now. Mm-hmm. And I turned around and on her way out, she locked the door behind her. And, and so that became our ritual. You know, every morning she would drag me across the room into this box and explain that this is the place you belong and then go off and 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 do things for the amazing children that might be something one day. So mm-hmm. that that was that became a really pivotal experience, you know, this daily reminder that you are not special, you are not uh normal. Um and so I would scream at the walls and punch the coach, but I wouldn't go home and tell my mama cuz you know, why wouldn't this be the place right for broken kid whose parents don't love each other and don't know if he's going to be in the same house next month or have three, you know, and it's, it, and my mom was trying to make sure she keeps her family together. So I just accepted this is where I was supposed to be. And one of the great graces is my mother's always had this wisdom uh, in her actions and her words. And, and she always, you know, talked about, you know, figuring out, you know, two things you can do when you find yourself in difficult places, figure out how you got there and figure out how you use it. There's, you know, that's mm-hmm. the choices we have. Yeah. And um, and so me in this code room every day, screaming at the walls and punching, you know, I, I knew why I was there, but I didn't know how to make this useful. What? But one day <laughs> after all these days of being dragged in there, I, um, I dry my eyes, stop screaming at the walls and I look up. And I realized that the coat room is where all the other kids keep their lunch boxes. And, and I realized what God put me here for. I asked, okay, this must be the place where I get full. Uh, um, was it always? And so I, I started being, uh, a little excited about going to the coat room. Was it, come on, is it, is it time to, let's go, teacher? We gotta, I gotta figure out what Susie got today. You are um, a man after my own heart. Food <laughs> is my love language and. Yeah. <laughs> And so, you know, the, the the Susie with the peanut butter jelly without the crust, the kid with the fruit cups, the, the kid with the juice box. And all of a sudden, I, I had access to all the stuff that I, I needed, right? Yeah. And um, until mama started coming to school complaining about their babies coming home hungry. And they uh-huh. had to investigate the mystery of the coat room like a Scooby-Doo episode. And there I was with all these lunch boxes spread around me. And uh, the teacher in that frustration and anger, you know, drug me out of the box and back across the room to that one magic seat right next to the teacher's desk. You know, that special seat we all have. And um, so she can keep an eye on that bad boy. So it was not a compassion. You know, it was out of frustration and, and maybe embarrassment. But what she accidentally did was put me in a space where I could learn. Right. You know, what we know now with all this amazing science is that I'm an, an oral an engaged learner. Right? Mm-hmm. That's my learning style. If you put me in a room of young people who are on their toes and, and, and on point, I can roll with them all day. You know, it's been my all my life I've been able to do that. If you don't lock me up in a box and isolate me, I'm on fire. 
But when you put me all by myself, there's nothing for me to feed off of. And so I, I start to die, literally. So, so, you know, that became the thing, always trying to stay in in the class, trying to stay in a space, even though every indicator was saying that I didn't belong there. You know, over my childhood, we, we moved schools a lot. We moved homes a lot, uh, 13 different homes uh, before I was 12 years old, you know, some of those are one month rentals where somebody would wake you up in the middle of the night and say, you know, don't turn on the lights, get your stuff. We got to go. You'll mm -hmm. be in a new school tomorrow. You know, five different elementary schools, you know, moving from, you know, place to place and always being that kid that, you know, the teacher, you know, says it's time for us to read out loud. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I'm spotlighted again as that, the, the stupid new kid. And so, you know, I, I start figuring out that if, if I, could get my hands on somebody fast enough. I'm that dangerous little boy that nobody wants to be next to. Not that stupid little boy that doesn't know how to do anything. And um, and I'd rather be dangerous than stupid. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I started using that as my way, you know, trying to, to figure out and navigate. Um, Eleven years old, I got my first arrest. Um, yeah. It was it was moving pretty quickly, and I, I think that when you add it all up. Uh, the world was giving me a, a very clear sense of who I was going to be or what I had a right to be. And at some point I said, well, if that's the case, then I mean, I need to get as much as I can in as, as I, as I can while I can. And so I was, I was trying to live a full life, uh, before 13, before, you know, uh, somebody pulled the rest of it out from under me. And so um, me and my, my, my buddies had, had gone into, I mean, a, a pretty deep trench of, of, uh, of behavior, absolutely unimaginable for most folk with a kid who was 11 years old. Um, and at the end of it was this experience where we're all at the police station and having this, this engagement and, and argument with, with, with the cops, you know, we'd have this one, police officer who was related to the manager of one of the apartments that we had lived in for a while. And there was this tension between he and us because, you know, this was East Point, Georgia, right outside of Atlanta, you know, it, 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 especially in the 70s and early 80s, you know, it was arguably one of the most racially segregated and racist, openly racist communities. And, you know, there was just this tensions that were always there. And one of the, that one cop, uh, he actually came into the police station while we were being processed and, and, and said something to the effect of, Oh, I didn't realize it was y'all. You know, if I'd have known that I'd have took the call myself and, and I'm pretty sure you wouldn't have all made it. I mean, it was just, it was just that kind of, and, um, so at the end of the day, we've been processed and, and fighting with, with the, the cops, all the mama started showing up. And, you know, I think that most of your audience know families in crisis. You know, and it's mostly mamas that are holding those families together. And when those babies hit that crisis point and everything in their tightly controlled, barely in control world starts to spiral, they do too. And so they all came in sideways screaming and, you know, I had to take three bus to get her. I might lose my job. You know, I'm just let them lock you up. You know, all that pain that comes out that, that is hiding fear hiding the knowledge that when systems get a hold of your baby and you're in crisis, it's a chance you might lose them for good and all this stuff, but it's covered by this, this rage. Right. And, um, and so as, as my mama hadn't shown up yet. And so I was like, you know, this is, maybe I should just ask the police to keep me. 
<laughs> right. You're watching this unfold thinking, yeah. oh, what is this going to be like? Yeah. And then, uh, and then my mom showed up and she was just like cool as an ice cube. And that's when I realized I was probably going to die because right even when they all come in excited, it's because they're still trying to get the fact that there's a problem in their head and they're trying to navigate it. When they have really calm, she's already got a solution. I was like, yeah, that's not good. It's over. Yeah. <laughs> she she thanked the, the police when she did the paperwork. And, and I was, you know, like, OK, well, you don't go off on the police station because they, they might arrest you. So when we get outside, I'm not sure what we're going to do. So we get outside. I always tell people I did what I call the near far near walk. That's when you walk close enough to somebody that everybody knows you're with that person, but you're not actually close enough to them that they can reach you if they start to swing all of a sudden. So you got a little safety distance, but you're still in proximity. So near far near walking. And so I'm kind of watching out the corner of my eye and making sure that she's still calm and she's just calm. And I was like, okay, well, maybe you don't go off in the police station parking lot. They call social services, open up a case, come to the house, all kind of stuff happens. So, you know, when we get in the car, I don't know what I'm going to do. My mother had to borrow somebody's car to come get me because she, we, don't, we didn't have a car. And so she borrowed a vehicle, come get me. We get in and I, I sit down, but in, instead of like buckling up and everything, I'm, I sit there at the edge of the seat, no seatbelt on, I, my hand on the, on the, literally on the doorknob, uh, like I'm about to bail out of an airplane. I'm like, you know, just in case I need to make sure that, you know, I don't get set up and we're riding. And, um, and I remember just, you know, trying to figure out what this was. I mean, she wasn't looking at me. She wasn't talking. We were just driving. It was dark. We'd been at the police station for five or six hours. And, mm-hmm. um, and I finally got the courage to look up at her and, and she's just bawling these huge silent tears. And she looked down at me and she said, baby, if, if you could see what I see every time that I look at you, you would know how great you already were. And wow. um, and that was, I mean, for a kid building a laundry list of of no, uh, this ain't you. You don't get to be uh, who the whole world is telling that you know the very best you can hope for is you know is the thing that you've already got this little bit. You know, for her to say that to be able to, and to say it with a straight face, to say it with meaning, to say it in a way that made me believe she could see something I couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, was a gift. I call it the double vision now, you know, the ability to, to look clearly in the moment and, and see what the truth is, right? The, the present, our truth. And at the same time, still speak and imagine and, and, and move toward the possible, that future self. And she was able to lay that out for me. You know, this, this is, this is where you are, not who you are. And that gift really, um, <clears throat> It shook me first because, you know, I didn't know how to respond to that. I know how to, I've been fighting since I was six years old. I've been, you know, I know how to handle. Uh, but and so it, it kind of set me on a, on a weird course trying to figure out what what is what is this other thing that I could be? Um, and, and that was a, a, a great gift uh, for me. Hey, Kim. Hello. I am so you? sorry. No worries. I said that you would come in. And make a scene, Kim. And you came in very quietly. I'm very surprised. Oh, it was I was already like listening. Like this sounds so good. Well, and you've missed a lot, and so I can't wait to hear it though. Yeah. So okay. I love what you said about the double vision, and I feel like that is when I when you say that, I think yes, moms have a gift at having double vision. 
But I also think educators and school counselors, I mean, you know, our audience is mainly school counselors, but educators in general, just, we see, I love what you said. We see what's there in front of us, but we can also see what they can become. And I love that term double vision. Yeah. It's, um, and that's, you know, when I said, I I spent a a lot of, a lot of my work is, is with educators, counselors, therapists, you know, folks who serve young people in all those capacities. And this really is one of the core messages, you know, when I talk about being a hope dealer, which I think writ large, that's what we are, you know, that double vision is, is at the core of it, right? To, to not get caught and trapped in what's right in front of you, but to be able to hold what my friend called detached curiosity about what could be, if I'm here, if I'm engaged, what could this be, right? And um, I think that's really valuable and too often overlooked. I wound up on probation for the rest of my childhood. Um, the judge did uh, uh, decide not to, to to lock me up at 11 years old. Uh, some of my friends who had, had previously been caught, been in trouble, um, wound up going to detention. Um, but I, I was on put on probation, uh, and you know it was literally the next the next thing you do that. 11 or 12 year old boys do whose frontal lobe isn't developed and their amygdala is in charge of everything. You know, I call it the alligator brain. Uh, any, any choice you do to, that is just natural child behavior uh, could, could trigger a response that will impact you for the rest of your life. And so um, became a very, very ne- narrow path for me to navigate in the world that I was trying to live in, you know. Um, but you know, being staying close to home, my my mother and my stepfather and my community really were the ones we talk a lot about. And I do a lot of work with agencies and folks, probation officers, and I talk a lot about those protective factors. I, when I educators, I talk about how we need to get young people engaged, not just in that cognition, but that the affective domain. Right? Bloom's taxonomy always talk about oh, cognitive this. And I'm like, but Bloom also talks about affect, the affective domain, the feeling house. He talks about the fact that we actually have to create relationship, give meaning. And, and community, then we can actually, you know, expect the brain to fire and, and to trust us enough to get to the, 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 the intellectual part of, of life. And so often we miss that opportunity. Uh, my mother started to enroll me in, I mean, she's, she and my father are both artists. And um, so enrolling me in art classes, in jewelry making, in, in martial arts, in dance, and some, you know, anything. And it took a lot. We were We were poor. And so it took a lot to manage that without a system to support those types of things. But she she knew that that was important. She knew that it was important for there to be something that defined me other than one, my juvenile you know, record, and two, my disability that made education always seem like this foreign place for me. So a place where I could actually find and see myself as 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 amazing in some way, and so um, those those opportunities, you know, I remember well. You know, she would put us all on the bus and take us down downtown to the theater. You know, and you know, people would always be like, "Well, you know, you're on welfare." You know, I hear this argument even now all the time. Well, poor people, why are you why are you expending all this extra money to give your kids this stuff? You know, you shouldn't be using the government's money like that. And what I realized with my mother is she wanted us to understand that we had a right to the whole thing. 
that there wasn't a, a truncated sense of, of what we have access to because of how where we came from, right? Uh, and that, that creates a sense of belonging and community, a sense of dignity that that will hold you. And, and it held me. Uh, it allowed me to be in very difficult places and say, this is not who I am. This is where I am. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that, you know, at the, for, so after that, uh, the next year, when I turned, I turned 12 in December and things were going well. I was on probation. Some of my buddies were coming back home. Um, and I was, uh, my, my mother and my stepfather were both working and, you know, we had a, like a super Christmas, you know, every once in a while you had that Christmas that is just like, out of a movie, the giant Christmas tree, the lights and ornaments and candy strung around it, all the puzzles and and toys that you see on Saturday morning cartoons under the tree, that kind of thing. And that was really amazing because for the last couple of years, we had been in such dire straits, we we couldn't afford it, you know. Um, Sometimes my my father would go out and try and find a tree, you know, he'd like find one on the side of the road or something. But, you know, some years we would just have to, my mom would just take the Christmas lights and she would pin them on the wall with push pins in the shape of a tree, you know, with that. And then she would make popcorn and get out the needle and thread and we would string popcorn on a needle and thread. And and those would be the ornaments we strung on our, on our light tree. Right. Um, And so, so this was, this was pretty special having all the stuff that we imagine normal families had. Um, we didn't go downtown to the annual Christmas party for poor children at the Civic Center, um, where they had the tables lined as far as you could see with food, and the volunteers give you those compartmentalized trays and say, you know, here, you can go as many times as you want, eat as much as you like. It was amazing. Uh, and when you were full, they would put you up on stage and sit you in Santa's lap and, you know, take a Polaroid picture and then give you that gift wrap box that, you know, I know so many of your, your counselors, you know, the boy five to seven, you know, a girl nine to 12, you know, and, and those, those were amazing to have, but it wasn't the same as having your stuff. Right. And so this Christmas was, was pretty wonderful. And, uh, you know, class of school started back right after the school new year. And just a few days in the school, my neighbor comes banging on my door and the, the back door. And he's like, my house is all fire in my house. And so I grabbed my father's fire extinguisher out of the kitchen and I ran three doors down and his mom, who had been making dinner for her husband who works the third shift had gone to check on the baby that started crying. And in the few seconds she was gone, that bacon grease in the pan caught fire and that bacon grease fire went straight into the cabinet above the, the stove and you know, straight from the cabin to the walls and, and up the walls and then hit that insulation in the ceiling. And because, you know, in some places, especially, you know, in the South, you know, you know, we were in rural, rural outside of Atlanta, um, you know, there was always been this sense that, you know, poor people ought to be thankful for what they get. Um, that's how I frame it now as an adult who sees and understands the system and, and, and moves in it. Um, but for whatever reason, there weren't firewalls between each of the housing units like the codes normally say. So because there weren't firewalls, when that fire hit the insulation in the ceiling, instead of consuming one family, it consumed 10 took everything we owned in the world and we sat there and literally watched our lives burn down after we'd just gotten it together. And by the end of the night, I was homeless again, you know, living out of a hotel. And by early the next morning, I was walking to school in somebody else's shoes and somebody else's pants. And, um, you know, somebody would say, Hey, that, that's the, that's the sweater my grandmama gave me for Christmas a couple of years ago, you know, and you, um, and you have to swallow down that pain that comes from living in other people's grace 
and still mm-hmm. find a way to be thankful because we're thankful, but it it still hurts. Um, and because mama didn't want me in my sixth elementary school, the whole family had to relocate back into downtown Atlanta, but she kept me enrolled uh, in Brookview, which was in East Point College Park area. And so I started a 5 a.m. wake up. I take a bus into downtown Atlanta, take a second bus back out um, to to school, and then I walk the rest of the way and, and to finish up my seventh grade school year. And um, after I finished my seventh grade school year, it was, you know, I was enrolled in alternative school. And it I was in alternative school for the next five years. Uh, but it was a pretty amazing school. Now, looking back on it, I realized that it was what was what I say is a real alternative school, providing a space for for young people who are neurodiverse and socially diverse and to 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 find who they are. Um, and um, it took me two years to realize that it was actually a private school. And three years to realize that my mama had been working to pay for me to be there by working for the school and doing odd jobs and offset printing and, you know, all this other stuff that I had no clue about. And so, uh, again, the gifts that the people who love you and want, you know, more than the whole world is, has ever promised you. I mean, there, there's there's a really clear through line about what my trajectory was. And, and my mother seemed intent on making that a lie. And I think that is that. And, and, and then she worked in cahoots with the administrator of the school. And I'll tell you, Dr. Lorraine Wilson is probably one of the most amazing educators I know. And whenever I speak to school counselors, she is the face that I see. She is the story I tell because she um, was that, that advocate who, who made me believe that, you know, one, education could be mine, that, you know, me being different didn't mean that I didn't have a right to it or I couldn't access it. We just had to figure out the lens, figure out the, the right way. Um, Dr. Wilson, I, I got called to Lorraine's office, and, you know, we called it, everybody by first names. It, when I first started, there were only 16 of us uh, in the whole school, and it, it grew over the years. Uh, I moved into the school and lived there the last three years because, um, you know, my my parents and the rest of the family were still still struggling. And so I moved into the school. My older sister moved back to St. Louis with my, my biological father. My youngest brother moved to Milwaukee with my mother's aunt. My baby sister moved with cousins. So whatever she could do to, to, to keep us all safe without giving us up to a system that you have no guarantees in. And so I moved into the school. But, you know, I was called to Lorraine's office once. I was I was called to Lorraine's office a lot. Um, you know, cause it, you know, I, I was still navigating with all those things, um, riding with me. But this one time I got called to our office, I'd gotten in trouble, got sent to our office and, um, Dr. Lorraine Wilson was legally blind, had these really thick glasses that magnified her eyes. And so she always moved with purpose. Like she was just, like, she glided because she had to know where everything was. And so she had this really smooth moving about it. And her, her glasses were really thick and magnified her eyes. And she just kind of, I always thought she was like a Jedi, you know, she just had this, this ability, this presence. And like, she knew everything. And so she kind of glided into her office and sat down in the seat across from me. And I'm waiting for her to, you know, give me the ride act that I, you know, the, the explanation about it's finally time for you to, you know, that's the speech that I'm used to. And um, and then she says, I know who you are. And, and then she just kind of pauses and she's like, oh, this can't be good. And then she says, and I think that you could accomplish anything you set your mind to. 
And I was like, well, that makes no sense at all. <laughs> so I sat there for a second. And then I remember, you know, she's legally blind. The world literally turns to shadow just a couple of feet ahead of her. And so I kind of started swaying side to side to see if she would you know, the eyeball check, we used to call it, see yeah. if she would follow me. <laughs> and she just kept looking straight ahead. So I was like, so I finally said, Lorraine, you realize it's Hassan, right? And she just kind of sat there. <laughs> and And then she said, I know who you are. And I think that you can accomplish anything you set your mind to. And I was like, okay. And then she said, the only thing that you could do, Hassan, is make me a fool for believing such great things about you. Mm-hmm. And for the very first time in my entire educational career, someone told me I was already great. Dared mm-hmm. me, dared me to give up being great for something less. And um, just like mm-hmm. my mom at the police station, there was this, 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 Ability to see and recognize right here all this chaos going on and still say, wow, and what's what's we going to do next? Um, So Dr. Wilson would do these things like in math class, I would get frustrated because she called me an intuitive mathematician. I could look at a math problem. I could give you the answer. Look at the problem, give you the answer. I did it all the way through algebra. I could get all the way up to pre-cal. I could look at the problem and give you the answer. But I was still getting failing grades on all my papers. And one day, Lorraine says, well, Hassan, just so you know, math isn't about the process. It isn't about the answer. It's about the process. I mean, you know, and, you know, every time I say it out loud, like in a group of teachers and educators, they all say, yeah, it's about that. I say, yeah, well, why do you all ask for the answer then at the end? Why don't you just say, tell me the process? And so I would get frustrated. So she started doing this thing in class. One day a week, she would just say, okay, clear your desk. And she would just start. You know, 13 times 3 plus 1 divided by 5 times 10. Whatever the equation were, however long the string was, when she stopped, I had the answer. So she made me like math god of the universe one day a week was teaching me to find my own success, right? To define my success different from others, that I still had something, but I had to figure out, you know, that and then one day in class, you know, she Dr. Rain Wilson taught every every class in, in school at some point. We were in like psychology class and she was like, Hassan, do you think you want to go outside and run around the school as hard as you can? And I was like, what? Yeah, I mean, and I never thought about it until you said it. But as soon as you said it, I was thinking about it. And that's exactly what I'm thinking. I want to go. And she was like, "Okay, you can do that." And the class, my class was like, "What?" And she said, "Go ahead." And so she, I mean, literally, I went outside and I ran around the school like five or six times as hard as I could. And um, and I come back in. I'm about to pass out, oxygen deprivation. I'm 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 barely standing. But there's this this sense of clarity, right? I always. The first time I saw it, there was like this Claritin, one of those those sinus commercials. I think it's like Claritin. And you look at it and the screen is all blurry. And they're talking, oh, no, I could not see. And then they take the medicine and they they pull like the edge of the screen comes up and you see this sharp spring. The first time I saw that commercial, I was was like, that's that's it, that's it. She just like, what are you talking about? I said, that's it. That's what it looks like when I can burn off enough energy to slow my brain down. 
Hmm. Like the entire world gets sharp edges for me. Everything makes sense. Things connect. And, and, and so that Lorraine would let me go do this. And then I would come back and I would have this clarity and connections and things made sense. And so she was teaching me how to manage myself. She was teaching me that I could figure out how to, to stay in these places that have been ejecting me since I was a, a young, a very young. And so these were the kind of the tools that she was supplying me. And at the same time, you know, keeping me moving forward. Uh, it, I'd get in trouble. And I remember walking down the hall with her once I got put out of a class uh, that was taking a test and it was a science class or something. And, and so she's walking and talking with me. And I mean, we're walking slow because she walks slow and we get all the way to the end of the hall toward her office. And she says, oh, I can go back to class and um, tell your teacher that you're, you're fine, that you, you passed the test. And I was like, what test? What are you talking about? She says, well, you know, we just talked about all the major concepts and you seem to have a, a good grasp of it. So go ahead and tell them. And I was like, what? what? And so it was just, this was the gift that she gave me. So over the five years there, you know, and in the three years living living with her at the school, you know, she really became, uh, she partnered with my mama became those foundational pieces. And there was lots of other, those hope dealers who were scattered around the school itself and just in that environment with, with me. Um, my senior year, I turned 18. Um, Lorraine called me back to her office and sat me in that same seat and explained that I had just failed the class that I needed for graduation. And um, and it wasn't going to be offered again before the end of the year, which meant that I wasn't going to be able to complete my requirements for graduation and that she was going to have to ask me to leave. And, and, and it just crushed me. I was just sitting there going, what do you, what do you mean? You know, I, I never imagined what, you know, I wasn't even imagining graduating, let alone leaving. Um, but, you know, we, we, we talked about it, but I, I was frustrated and angry. Um, but it, it I had to leave. And so I, I packed up and I moved back in with my mom who had gotten resettled, my mom and dad, and, and all the kids had all come back. And so we were all back there. Um, my best friend had moved in because his his whole family life had kind of fallen apart. And so I, I moved back into, you know, my brothers, Derek and Sean, my next older brothers. I have three, Derek, Sean, and Tony. Tony's the youngest. He was kind of great at everything and so he didn't have to navigate the world like us sean was my stepbrother is my stepbrother um who came to us at eight years old with cigarette burns and bruises over most of his body from his mama's friends and uh and a real lesson uh in the world that might is the only thing power is the only thing that matters and if you don't have it you don't have anything and then my, my foster brother my best friend Derek, who uh like i said his family fell apart but you know brilliant guys I mean, these were, they, they, so we kept each other alive. And, um, and the thing that, that for me was always trying to figure out how to get them to see how amazing they were. Uh, I always tell this story about my brother, Sean, when I was at Horizons, I came home, I would come home sometimes on the weekends and I came home to visit once and Sean was, was sitting in the corner of the room with, uh, with wires tied around his head. It looked really weird. And I was like, Kaz, what are you doing? Kaz. That was his, his street tag was Casanova. So we called him Kaz. He was like, yo, man, I'm talking to my girl. I was like, well, how are you talking to a girl with wires tied around your head? So I took it from him. Hello, I said, you know, hello, somebody answered. I was like, dude, where'd you get this? And he was like, remember that old Walkman? You know, 
Walkman was a thing, right? Before we had iPhones and iPods and CD players even. You had a Walkman and 20 batteries. You was good for half a day, right? And uh, I was like, yeah, yeah. He said, I took that old Walkman and um, and I took the broken telephone that, that Mama had downstairs and I took them apart and I started messing with the boards and I kept, got a little static. So I just I kept on messing with them until I got a dial tone and I called my girl. Oh, my word. I know. I was like... You made this? He was like, yeah. No, no. You made this? He said, yeah. I said, no. You, I wasn't sure if you understood the question. You made this. I was pointing. You made this. He said, yes, I made that. Now, he built a telephone headset. <laughs> in his, and this was the 80s, right? We didn't have telephone right. headsets yet. We had that old phone in the kitchen. We barely had cell phones. I mean, yeah. Like, every, yeah. yeah. There were no cell phones in the 80s. No, no. You had you know, car phones. Yeah, the, I mean, that's what if, I mean. Your car yeah, phone. If you were if you were really high end, you had the the cordless phone, right? But it yeah. was yeah. but as I was like, man, you could be one of those electric guys. I mean that was that seemed pretty amazing, but that's all I had. We didn't have computer guys yet. Um and he just started laughing at me. He said, No, man, this it's just what I do when we're hanging out at the house, but ain't nobody gonna let me do this in the real world. Then he got real quiet and he just looked and he says, Bruh. We don't get to be great in the real world, and it it was it wasn't a question. It was it was it was just clarification, uh, as far as he was concerned, because uh, mm. you know, I was always talking about what we're gonna do, right? We're gonna show all these people that we're gonna be, and so, so that was, so I went back into that world, and I was, you know, my thing was maybe I could get, you know, if I can get Derek and Sean and Tony out there, if, even if it took me sacrificing everything, because you know I was. I only had one strike left. So I was like, if I could figure out how to maneuver them so that they're not caught up in this and they can go, it would be a gift to the world for them to be there. And um, Derek got expelled from high school, from his school, shortly after I got expelled. And then Sean, not much longer after that. Um, we Derek and I took the GED. We all talked about taking the GED. You know, we're going to blow the GED out, and we're going to go to college, and we're going to just make everybody be like, "Not, I didn't see that coming." Um, Derek and I took the GED, and um, we finished like two hours early, and we were like, "That's that can't be a good sign." <laughs> it was like, well, either way, it's you know, it, it is what it is. But um, we actually did really well, you know. And it, you know, again, one of those frustrations we realized I could have done this and in the 10th grade and been avoided all this other chaos, maybe, I don't know. But so Derek and I got, took the GED and I was like, let's go to college. We, we can do this. Let's figure out. Um, and I heard about this college in Kentucky. Uh, actually I learned later that, uh, Lorraine told my mother about it and suggested that, that we apply. It's Berea college. Um, and Berea is just an amazing place. You know, you have to be poor to be accepted. Every student that gets accepted has a full academic scholarship. So it is a game changer as far as breaking the cycle of poverty. Um, and so we had heard about Berea. So I applied to go to Berea. And I, that's actually the only place I applied to. Uh, and the week before classes were supposed to start, I had not received any word from the college. So not knowing a lot about college, I didn't know that if you haven't heard from a college the week before classes start, there's probably a really good reason for it. I just thought they must have lost my paperwork somewhere. So I actually picked up the phone and I called Berea College Collect. Y'all remember Collect Calls back yes. 
when you came yes. to call, because you know long distance calls cost money. It's not like with our cell phones, you can call around the world. And so I, I had to, I called the college and asked to be collect, so the college would pay for the call if they accepted it. And I thought that that was just a long shot in the first place, right? You know, to call. But um, the thing that I learned over and over again, right, is that the answer is no, one hundred percent of the time if you don't ask the question. Yeah. So why not? I, let, I learned you let people tell you no, don't tell yourself no. And that's what I tell the students I coach all the time now, you know, my students that okay. I mentor. But So I call Collect and the operator accepts the call, which surprises me because I was, you know, I was just a Hail Mary. And then she's like, so who do you want to talk to? And I, I hadn't expected to get that far. So I didn't have a name. So I just said the director of admissions. And she said, please hold. And I was like, oh, crap. Is she, you know, is she about to put the direct? And so the next voice was literally the direct, director of admissions, John John Cook, director of admissions. How can I help you? And I was like, um, hey, Mr. Cook, my name is Hassan. I'm from Atlanta. I applied to come to Berea. Classes start next week, and I haven't received my acceptance letter. So I'm just calling to see where it is. And... Uh, you could you could almost hear the 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 deep sigh like oh gosh not really, and so he says well hold on let me go find your file, and he goes and and digs and whatever oh no you don't file right the garbage can hadn't been taken out yet or something, uh, and he comes back a minute later he says okay Mr Davis I'm gonna have to be really clear with you, Berea is one of the most competitive application processes in the nation. We get thousands and thousands of applications for a few hundred spots every year. And I've almost got my entire class filled. I've only got a couple spaces that have not been locked in. And I've got some very promising applications right here on my desk. I don't think this is going to work for you. You know, what he didn't say was no. So I said, well, Mr. Cook, I need to know for sure. And he said, okay. Let me call you back in an hour or so and confirm that. And so I hung up. And in my head, I was like, unless there's some kid from Virginia, he just called. I got I got a chance, maybe. <laughs> and uh, about an hour later, the phone rings, and it's Mr. Cook. And he's got like this weird, you know, like, I can't believe I'm about to say this out loud sound to his voice. And he says, okay, Mr. Davis, <clears throat> I think... We are going to give you a chance. I mean, like, he's still trying to, I, I can't believe I'm about to say this out loud. And so that quick, all of a sudden, I, I'm a college student. I got a week to get myself together and to get to Kentucky from Atlanta. Um, we, we get, um, well, I started getting my clothes together in garbage bags and little tote bags that are around. And uh, at this time, I've been apprenticed to a screen printer, a screen printing artist, silkscreen artist uh, that my mother connected me with in her art community. And Bill Prankard was a, I always, always said that he was an eccentric old white dude. But now looking back, he might have been like 30, 35, right? You know, yeah. but you know, every, so, you know, you have his perspective and, uh, <laughs> you know, he, he owned apartments. And so I would help him out when I wasn't in turn, you know, in, in Apprenticing with him with screen printing, I would help him out with his his apartment that he owned and and handyman stuff, just little stuff. And so we're riding around a few days before I'm supposed to leave, and uh, he watched past these apartments, you know, kind of close to the, the the projects, and he jumps out and starts going through this stuff on the curb. Now, what I know, having grown up in this environment, is that what's on the curb is all the leftovers from somebody's eviction at the beginning of the month, right? You get put out 
you guard whatever you can. We used to have this process. We get off the bus and we see somebody stuff out. We would we would stand there and try and guard it as much as we could from the predators that come around until the parents got off work and could cobble together a car, a truck, something to guard off whatever they can. Everything else you leave. And so you know this was this was what couldn't be taken. And he's rummaging through it and rummaging through it, and I'm embarrassed for him. Uh, but he finds this old raggedy box and he, at the bottom of the pile, and he tosses it in the back of the truck. And, um, and I'm just curious. I have no idea what this exchange is. But at the end of the week, I'm about to leave. And so we have like this going off to college party. And Bill Prankert shows up with this, um, this big chest, steel metal gray rope handles, got a lock on the front. Uh. And he says, Hassan, you're a college student now. And college students deserve to have something to put their stuff in. And this is yours. Wow. And, um, <laughs> and he gives it to me. So, you know, I open it up and I dump all my clothes out of my garbage bags and my little tote bags. And, and I, I've, I'm ready for college. I got this. And we, we throw everything to the back of the gremlin and uh, we start for Kentucky. Mm. The car literally breaks down halfway somewhere in Tennessee. Oh. I'm like, okay, let's maybe we let's just go home, right? You know, this was uh, this was a hail mary in the first place, but my 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 father gets gets it back together. You know, duct tape and chewing gum. He's 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 amazing with. He makes things happen. He keeps you know, and so we we get to Berea like in midnight. Um, and Berea is a small town, you know, especially in the 80s. I mean, it, everything shut on a Sunday. Everything shut down at five, and so orientation's over. The student center is closing down. I, I catch the, the the last student locking up, and they're like, you know, orientation was like 10 hours ago. I'm like, you know, that's not very helpful. Um, you know, I'm here now. This is what all I got. So they they call around and finally find one of the dorms to tell me to go over to the dorm, uh, Bingham, and. You know, the head resident meets us there, Virgil, Virgil Burnside, and he um, explains that all the beds are gone, but they've got overflow in the lobby. They've got some beds set up in the lobby, uh, and there are like four other guys there, and so this is going to be where I stay until, you know, a dorm room frees up. And he's like, you know, don't worry. People drop out the first week or so. I'm like, oh, that's, that's great to hear. Thank you very much. <laughs> so um, we bring my trunk and stuff in, and my mom reaches into her purse and she pulls out a $20 bill, her, her last $20. And she says, okay, baby, it's time for you to decide who's right about you and who's wrong, but you have to make a choice now. And, um, mm. and, and she left me in this new world where people didn't look like, think like, act like, talk like me to mm. try and do something that nobody ever imagined that, that, that I could do. Uh, about a week in the in the lounge, and you know, me and one of the other guys there, Marcus, we got a room uh, in Bingham and became roommates. And I would uh, wait for Marcus to to go to sleep. You know, he'd be hanging out, so it'd be late when he, everybody, you know, at freshman year, everybody hangs out, and so it would be late at night um, when I was sure he was finally asleep. I would dig into the bottom of my drawer and pull out my penmanship pad. You know, red line, blue line, red line. You know, and I would practice my handwriting like I've been doing my entire life. Um, I'd, I'd practice, you know, three or four pages, and I was sure he was asleep. And then I would get my desk lamp out, and and I would go through my books for the next day, and I would figure out which class I might be able to read three or four pages over and over again, over and over again, over and over again for the next couple of hours that I could I could catch on to enough 
that I could go into class and, you know, blurt it out and make it look like I know what's going on, right? And um, I was in zero-level English and zero-level math the entire first year, so they didn't even count for basic college credit to get me up to remedial. So everything about this is saying, this is not you. You're an imposter. You don't belong here. Yeah. Um, but there's this voice in my head saying that if you could see what I see, you know how great you were. Mm -hmm. So so I made it three semesters, mostly faking it. I mean, I learned really good um, in middle school through high school how to listen really closely. As long as I was close to people who were talking about it and I could convince people or get people into a conversation about it, I could... I could make an intuitive leap and I could I could manage to be in a conversation. And since I wasn't afraid, like 90 percent of young people are to be heard and to be seen, I, I, those were the things that allowed me to stay in places because it seemed like I knew what was going on. I was always engaged. And so so but eventually I, I, I did get expelled. I got expelled because I, I just couldn't keep faking it. You know, when you get to those deep level classes and um, and I wound up going back home and, you know, Work, running with my brothers and, you know, doing, you know, keeping them alive and keeping us safe. Uh, but I realized that if, if I didn't do something pretty dramatic, that was going to be the end of it. Yeah. So uh, one day I wrote a letter to my mother from Fort Knox, Kentucky. and said, Dear Mama, I'm joining the Army today. I see when these people let me out. But I had to make a decision today, so I did. And um, so I went through my training, which is a whole other <laughs> It was a great adventure. I learned a lot about myself, and I, and I also cemented the idea that I had a right to demand things that other people thought I didn't deserve. Mm -hmm. uh, the moment I raised my right hand and 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 gave an oath to give my life, the expectation changed. So it wasn't just me hoping and wishing. You know, I I I believed that I had a right to things, and so I finished up my my basic training and advanced training. And I cycled back into the Army Reserve. As soon as I got home, I bought a one-way Greyhound bus ticket back to Berea. And I got to Berea in January. January, we used to call short term. So all the students just take one class a day, one one class for a whole month and really deep dive. And so, um, and I went to the Dean of Students and I, I, I went and knocked on the doors. Hey, you know, I'm Hassan Davis, used to go to school here. Um, and trying to get back into school. He was like, okay, I understand that, but I'm, I don't think it's going to work out for you right now. And I said, okay, sir, thank you. I'll see you tomorrow. <clears throat> and the next day I came back. Hey, how are you? I'm Hassan Davis. I used to go to school here. He said, well, you were here yesterday, right? Yes, sir, I was. He said, you want to get back in school? I do. He said, but I told you yesterday that you can't. You did. He said, well, you still can't. I said, okay, sir, thank you. I'll see you tomorrow. And, um, the next day I showed up and I was like, he said, Mr. What are you doing? Why do you keep doing this? I said, well, sir, this is the only thing on my to-do list. So the sooner you get this done, I guess you can do whatever else it is that you do in your job. And he says, sir, you, you still can't come back to school here. You, it's, Yeah, this, is, this isn't going to work out for you. Um, and I, I called um, Dean Hager, Paul Hager. I called him a liar. Uh, because when I left, one of the things you have to do when you leave school like I did is you have to meet with the dean of students, you know. And he, he said, you know, this is hard. You know, Berea is 99% of the students here are first-generation college students. 
They've never experienced this before. It's a hard transition. And some, many of them are the first in their family ever imagined it. So it's not easy, you know, and, you know, it's the spill. And, you know, it's hard in the environment to navigate and to shift so fast. And, and lots of people get challenged. When you're ready to come back and you've got taking care of your things, you know, Berea will still be here. So that's the promise. And I imagine that's the promise that every good, you know, counselor, every good administrator makes to students who are in crisis. Well, most of those students don't come back. Right. They go somewhere else. They make up a story. They pretend it never happened. Uh, but I came back, which is an anomaly. You know, very mm -hmm. few people show up to this, the site of their worst failure in a battle. Uh, and so I reminded him of what he said. And and he said he remembered that conversation. And so he said, OK, I'll go talk to the scholarship committee and uh, and see if they have any thoughts about it. So once you come back tomorrow, which was great that he invited me because it was already pinned into my schedule. So the next day I showed up and he said, okay, Mr. Davis, um, I managed to get you back in for the spring semester. You're gonna be in academic probation, labor probation, social probation and convocation probation, but you're gonna be a student. And I was like, well, I was on all of those probations when I left, so this is like breaking even. This yeah. is great, you know, this, I like this. And um, and so I got back in and that that's beginning of the spring semester. First thing I did was went to all my professors and said, hey, um, I really need to make this work. So can you let me know if I'm not doing, you know, and I, I wasn't ambitious. I said, can you let me know if I'm not doing D plus work? Right. I mean, I just I just need to get through. I'm not trying to to be anybody's scholar. I just need. So I just, you know, the bar is very low now and I got to get over it. And so I was really clear. And, when, you know, had, and one professor, you know, he was, you know, had a, it was a freshman seminar class and, you know, we would have these conversations. And so I was I was all into it. You know, it was like the paper chase in my mind. This is what college was. You know, he would say things and, and I was like, I don't agree with that. And, and I was like, yes, this is like and that what I didn't realize is I was the only one who in that class who wasn't a true freshman, who wasn't 18 years old looking at the professor as the God of all knowledge and just writing everything down verbatim. Mm -hmm. And so while I was engaging with him, like I thought this was supposed to be, apparently it wasn't what he wanted. So at the end of the semester, he calls me to his office and explains to me that we had a, a final paper that every, all the students did in, in his class, that he, he averaged 30 minutes on each of the final papers. And then he saved mine for last. Then he went to the library and checked out all of the sources that I cited. Then he spent four hours combing through my paper, matching it with the cites, until he found, and this is a direct quote, two sentences that are close enough to original text that I feel comfortable charging you with the academic crime of plagiarism. And he just looked, he looked me right in my face and just explained this to me. Um, and I, I was just dumbfounded. Uh, at first, I just, I, mean, I thought maybe, you know, it was a joke. I was looking for the tail and, and he's just dead serious. Um, and, you know, inside of me, of course, is, is that other Hassan, right, who doesn't allow people to threaten his life because, uh, you know, and I've been, I've been, I've been hurting people since I was six years old threatening my life. And I'm sitting here with this man. And, and so my, I'm, I'm like, why, why, why would you do this? And he said, well, your, your 
opening statement and thesis were so good, I couldn't convince myself you wrote them. Which, which again, one of those, you know, when, when somebody feels that comfortable in their transparency, it's, it, it's, and the clarity was there. And I was like, well, well, what do you think now? He says, well, you wrote a pretty amazing opening statement and thesis, but I've got these two sentences close enough to original text that I'm comfortable charging you with the academic crime of plagiarism. And, um, and so I asked, I said, well, you know, what's to stop me from just walking out here with the paper? I mean, you can fail me in your class for not turning the final paper in, and I won't have all of this. And I, I think in and, and that moment, he looked up and realized that I was between him and the only door out of that cage that he was in. You know, and I'm, I'm still trying to measure myself because I realize that everything about what my brain is telling me to do will confirm everything he thinks he knows and made him do this and so I'm, I'm I'm struggling hard and talking fast I'm like okay I tell you what and I threw the paper down you do what you have to do but you need to understand you can't stop me you know and I, and I walk out and I, it sounded really courageous brave heart kind of it but it really was just me desperate to get out of there and my brain is just screaming break something and and um and and I and I walk out and everything I'm, I'm in my head I'm like okay Call your brothers, pack your stuff, get home, stop pretending. You know, I, I thought about Sean's voice in my head, right? We don't get to be great in the real world. And um, lesson learned, okay. So I walk across campus, I'm angry, and I got to go see Dean Hager and apologize for him making all those decisions and all that trust and me breaking it immediately uh, and failing. And I, I'll go to my mailbox the student center and um, inside of it is a, is a paper bag envelope and, and I open it up and, and, and there's a, a bandana and if you've ever seen pictures of me as a young person I always had a bandana on uh, that was my tag and uh, inside of the, the the bandana was wrapped in plastic and it was a Japanese rising sun with characters and written in marker on the outside of it were these words Inevitable victory for Hassan with love, mom. Mm -hmm. And I learned years later I, that the symbols on the side were inevitable and victory. And so I'm sitting here with this message from my mama that, you know, of course she had to send like six days ago when I was still telling her, oh no, mom, everything's great. It's good because I don't want her worrying because she's been worrying for me her whole life. And, um, and I think I got a good poker face and, and uh, clearly I don't. But there's this message, inevitable victory for Hassan with love mom. And so I sit down on the, on the wall outside the student center with this message from my mama and with these expulsion papers that I'm about to go turn in. And there's this voice ringing in my head. It says, it's time for you to decide who's right about you and who's wrong. But you have to make a choice, baby. And so I said, okay, I'm not done yet. I did my paperwork. I apologized to the dean for betraying his trust. And I left and I said, I moved to the next town over, Richmond, because I knew I couldn't go home again. I knew I wouldn't get out of that again a third time. Uh, so I started working construction. But I said, I'll be back. And they were like, no, you won't. <laughs> so I worked construction for a year. And um, I came back to Berea. And I came to the dean and... And he was like, no, Hassan, it's not going to work. I said, Dean, how about this? How about you let me go and talk to that committee? Let me say what i got to say. And if they tell me no, I'll just leave. 
but I just need to know that I did everything in my power, that there was nothing I left on the table. I, I can't leave without knowing I did everything I could. And uh, if they tell me no, then I'll leave. No, no trouble. And so he arranges for me to go and speak to the committee, which is very unusual. He said, you got five minutes. And and I went in and I just said, you know, nobody's going to look at a, a place like Berea College. They gave a guy like me three chances and say, what a terrible place that is. You know, but what if I can do this? What if, what if the things I imagine can happen? It'll prove everything about what Berea stands for and everything I believe in myself. I took a deep breath and I said, I just need you to loan me $3,000. They were like, what? Remember, Berea pays everything, right? And I'm like, and of course, in the 80s, that's like 20 grand I'm asking for. <laughs> um, and they're like, what? I was like, yeah, there's this new computer called a Mac Plus. And um, it has Microsoft Write 1.1 with spell check and a grammatic Mac program. I'm not even sure what those are, but I think if I had those tools, I could finally get what's inside my head that I think is so amazing out. Wow. See it. And and if it's terrible, you can tell me it's terrible and I'll leave, but I think there's something there. You know, I just need you to give me one more second chance. And um just like Mr. Cook, those those years were fed with no good reason, they said, Okay. And you're going to be on academic probation, labor probation, social probation, convocation probation, and double secret probation. And they said, and you have to promise not to come and talk to us if you get kicked out again. Yes, promise to leave. I was like, that sounds pretty fair. And so I got the loan. I got my computer. Actually, I'm I'm looking at my Mac right here. I've got it. I've I've still got it. It's right right there behind my other desk. And, um, and so I started the semester, I got back in, and I'm carrying this with me. I've got a big, big bag for it still. And I'm carrying a 25-pound personal computer, my first personal computer. This is the very first ones. Every classroom, I'm setting it up. I'm in the back of the room. And, I, and people are like, what are you doing? I am I'm making sure is what I'm doing. Uh, I made the dean's list my first semester back. Wow. Wow. And once I started getting past the probations and past the sense of, of not being, you know, and the big change was I finally had the courage to ask for the things that I needed, you know, instead of fearing that if I tell people that I I don't see the world different, they try to put me in a box again. I realized that, you know, there are people here who wanted to help me, that there are people, there's access to all these things that I never accessed because I was afraid that that was a tale, right, that I was, you know, but I was finally asking and seeking that kind of support. Um, so I, once I, when I got off probation. I was I, I was voted homecoming king. I was <laughs> I was elected president of the student body. Uh, I received the Navy V twelve award, which is one of the highest awards that a student can receive. Uh, you know, and at, at graduation, uh, my senior year, because I was president of the student body, I gave the opening prayer and welcome. And so I stood on the stage with all of the dignitaries, and um, just as I took the podium to give the opening prayer. I looked up and the usher was escorting my mama down to her seat. And there's this voice ringing through my head. If you could see what I see every time I look at you, baby, then you'd know how great you already were. Mm. And um, yeah, and and so I, I I gave the opening prayer and welcome and and the thank you and had thirty family members show up from 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 across the family because I I was the first in my entire family 
generationally to ever graduate college. And, and, and I look back on it, actually, all of my cousins who were between the ages of six and 12 at the time, most of them have graduated college. Wow. You know? It's about that, that moment that shows people that there's a new reality, right? And so from there, I went on to law school, and that's a whole other, that, that would be a whole other segment. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a deep breath, collect myself. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's been an adventure. It, and um, a big part of why the work that I, I do, is, I think is so important, especially uh, with school counselors, with educators, with hope dealers across the board, is because I have experienced the impact that those people who choose to, they don't have to, but they choose to make a child's well-being and possibility their mission, there's there's no question that that is the gift that, that allowed me to just have the, the brazen courage to believe with all of those things lined up behind me that, oh, college, let's go try that and, uh, and do it with a straight face, you know? Uh, having those people look at me and see me and allow me to see myself different were absolutely pivotal in my ability to make that, to navigate and believe that thing about myself. Wow. What a story of resilience and persistence. I don't know if I know anybody as persistent as you are. After hearing story. You have to be persistent. And I think just this reminds me of the hurdles that some students are going to have to navigate to get to a better life than what they're in now and to teach that I love I think that you ask and get what you need and maybe that's a lesson that we need to be instilling into students is ask for what you need to be successful because they know probably what they've got to overcome but I think that is why so many students don't move forward they remain in that cycle Mm-hmm. because once they start hitting those hurdles, which they are going to hit, and it's so easy for them to be drugged back into what they were in, in that feeling of, well, everybody's right. This is exactly what everybody says. And yeah. I yeah. am. And and so that message of, I love hope dealer. Mm-hmm. I, um, that is a, that is a huge takeaway because we do have the power to, for good and we have the power for evil. That's exactly and, right. Um, to, I'm picturing you as a student, as a kid. I cannot see what you're saying, seeing you sitting there with all these books behind you. But I, I, I know that kid. We all know that kid. No, We've got a yeah. full, full of those kids. And sometimes it is just so aggravating as an educator because to get through, to they keep, they repeat, like you were saying, you repeated, you repeated these same behaviors. And to just not give up as an educator, because we don't know what that pivotal moment is going to be, what those words that we say may be. That's my big takeaway. And I think it's going to be a big takeaway for a lot of school counselors and educators. I can't wait to hear the first of this. I'm sorry I missed the first of it. But this was so important. And I am so honored that you came on and you shared this with us. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate it. I'm sure that we're going to have people saying, I need him to speak at my school. I need him. I need his contact information. You speak at schools. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
So tell us, um, tell our listeners if they want to get in touch with you, what they need to do. Sure. Um, my website is HassanDavis.com. There's, there's, there's a lot of good information on there about, uh, you know, in addition to speaking, I, I do a lot of training and development for, for educators and adults who work with young people across systems. Uh, but the, the core of my work used to be in the schools, you know, working, you know, from elementary through high school, uh, engaging those students. And, and it, it, that, that's something I enjoy and I miss having been able to do more of. Um, so HassanDavis.com, there's a link in there where you can actually send a request for, uh, I guess it's, it's like an email link or something. Um, and then my email is, is there, Hassan at HassanDavis.com. And it, so, yeah, the website talks about my living history. I do living history interpretation, too. I tell the story of African-Americans in American history, uh, like York of the Lewis and Clark Expedition. Uh, I tell his story as the only African-American member of the expedition. During the bicentennial Lewis and Clark, the 200 commemoration, uh, the Department of Interior and National Parks actually picked me up to be York for the nation. So I was York for the nation. Wow. Uh, wow. And telling his story across the country, you know, along the Lewis and Clark Trail. Uh, and and I, I, wrote a, I wrote a children's book. The Journey of York um, came out in 2019, I believe. Oh my goodness! And um, and it it just it it it's, it was exciting to finally get the story because I've I've toured the one man show that I wrote. I've toured it across. I mean, I've probably done 600 performances in the last 20 years. Um, national parks, big you know historical events, to classrooms, uh, universities, the whole. But and, and so. Uh, there's information about that. I have other living histories I do to a Civil War soldier and then Joe Lewis, the boxer. And then my other books have information, too. I have a, a book. The the book that is my story is called um, Written Off, How One Man's Journey Through Poverty, Disability and Delinquency is Transforming the Juvenile Justice System. And that just that when I was leaving my role as commissioner, uh, realizing that there were folks who were asking me again, I guess someone actually said, you know, Hassan, you speak to teachers and educators and all these folks all over the place, but you know, you're going to die, which I thought was a terrible lead in. <laughs> then they were like, you know, but it would be great if people could still take lessons from your living. And I was like, Oh, okay. Um, and so that that came out wonderful, and I've had lots of opportunity. You know, I've done book studies with school districts, uh, with um, with with leadership teams, with school counselors, uh, using it as a, as a book study and conversation, which has been wonderful. Um, and then uh, I wrote uh, my first book of poetry. I published all my poetry I've written for the last forty years. Finally, this year, uh, and it's uh, in the publication called Human Rights. And then just a couple months ago, I published my my newest book, which is actually. It's it's called the race, and it's actually the the poem that I wrote that I, I intro my keynotes with. Um, and somebody said, you know, you should you should get some illustrations. That'd be an amazing story. And so um, I got an illustrator to illustrate it this last year, and, um, and so now I actually use the the slides and the visuals. I was I was speaking in L.A. earlier this Monday, and um, the audience is just really especially this audience is such the, the, the images with the story that tells us about a kid escaping special ed class, basically. 
and you know going out to he hears all this excitement outside at the races and all the other kids get to do this great stuff and so he sneaks in and slides in and you know they're, they they don't want to let him in but the the fans and other people say come on give him a shot why not and so he gets a shot at it doesn't do great but for him, it's amazing because it's a it, you know it's the first time he's ever had a chance to do anything, and so it's and so he he gets caught and dragged back, but but um he realizes after having that experience that that he has a right to it, so he starts crafting a, a plan to escape for his, to get to his next great race, um and so and it it's just I've been really proud when I wrote it you know it, it mirrors my story a lot and that's the, the thing in it you know the little pieces of my story throughout um and I it was my my personal mental health that I wrote it for but when I started to share it um and I hear young people when they hear it talk about yeah that's you know that that's that that feels like me and I hear you know hope dealers saying yeah I see myself in the story as that one who you know who slipped the key or gave the note or said you know give him a shot you know, and um, it's just been, been feeling really good for that uh, to be in the world and for folks to, to, to be able to access it. And, um, and so I'm really excited. And we take a deep breath. I get excited. Wow. We get to breathe and get excited. So, um, yeah. Wow. I mean, that's a lot. That is a lot of accomplishments. And uh, I'm just wondering, do you ever sleep? So that is amazing. I, I, I don't, gonna- actually. I bet. <laughs> but you're always doing. Thank you again for sharing all that you share. And thank you for all the good work that you're doing for our youth and our nation. And um, keep it up. We appreciate you. Thanks so much. Well, I appreciate yeah. y'all. And thanks for the opportunity to come hang out. We've enjoyed it. Thank you for uh, for being with us and sharing your story. This has been great. Thanks a lot, y'all.